Good morning. morning. Telling you, there's not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you this morning. Can I get an amen to that? It is good to be together. We are in week three, the final week of a little mini-series on Noah. I've mentioned, I guess I've mentioned both week that this was per Brooklyn's request. And so yesterday I thought, well, I wonder if she's sad that we're kind of winding down. I said, well, Brooklyn, I said, you know, this is our last week on Noah. And she said, yeah. I said, have you, like, learned anything from Daddy preaching? And she said, oh, Dad, when you start preaching, I just would wear other color. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm watching all of y'all. If I see you looking down down color, and you're going to say you're taking notes, but I know what's happening, all right? She has revealed everyone's secrets. So she'll have to come back and watch the, uh, maybe the recordings when she's older. She did, in her defense, take notes during early service to share with me. So she paid attention this morning, and I appreciate that. You know, one thing that has certainly been uncovered as we've walked through the story of Noah and, and, and the flood is that this is certainly not a children's story. I mean, it's, it's one that we cherish, that we learn from our youth, that we tell in all of the children's Bible classes, but we have wrestled with and dealt with some really big and deep and, and, even, and even dark topics as we've walked up to this account in Genesis. This is the most formidable display of God's wrath in all of Scripture. I mean, we see this completely depraved world in week one and, and the infection of sin and how so quickly it had just swept its way through humanity. And then last week, I, I left you with the challenge, of what, what side of the door are you going to be on when God seals the ark? I mean, there is a day when God's judgment is going to be put into place and there's going to be no return and we no longer have a choice. But, but in the midst of this difficult story, the, the depravity of the world and the, the wrath of God God, we see hope emerging because in the story of Noah, we learn that God's people are certainly not forgotten. And this week, I think we get the, the clearest glimpse into what God is thinking through this process and, and, and how, it, how it moves into our life. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 9. And I want you to open your Bibles or your devices so that you can have the text in front of you. It's not going to be on the screen, but we're going to be mostly in Genesis chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 9. We see in in Genesis chapter 8, a little bit of overlap with last week, but in Genesis chapter 8, you're going to see that God actually reveals some things about his heart, what he is thinking. It's a really unique perspective that we get in Genesis chapter 8. And then as we move into Genesis chapter 9, we're going to see the way that he reveals what's going on in his heart to Noah and, and to us. So that's what we're looking at. We're going to start in verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 8. Let's read it together. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And, and God made a, a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. So last week we left with Noah on the ark, with the rain pouring down, with all of every living thing that was on the earth had perished, um, poor God's wishes. But here as we step into Genesis chapter 8, we see the, the shift in the narrative of the story. And we see this powerful statement opening the chapter, God remembered Noah. Now, that often makes me think something that's probably a little bit incorrect. 
Because when I think about remembering something, it implies that I first forgot it. So a lot of y'all have experience with this. You have forgotten your keys and your spouse helped you remember where they were left, right? Or you have forgotten an appointment and maybe your spouse helped you remember that you had that appointment. You've forgotten that you received a text message and later you were reminded that you needed to respond. We often forget things and then we circle back around and we remember them and and we make it right. And I, I look at this text and the first thing I know for sure is that God did not forget Noah. That can't be correct. God certainly doesn't forget things being the God that he is. But I can guarantee you that at least for a moment, Noah probably felt like he did. Can you imagine what it would be like to be sealed into a big boat with all of those animals for all of that time and just to look out for, for days on end to see the waters rising and the rains coming down and, and looking out across an expanse with no land showing anywhere in sight, the feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of emptiness, the feeling of being forgotten. Noah certainly would have felt like God had looked the other way. But, but that's not the case because we see in Genesis chapter 1, God remembers And so I've tried to wrap my mind around what's the text mean when it uses that phrase. If we glance through some other passages in the Old Testament, we see it's a pretty common way of talking about God and how he interacts with people. So in Genesis chapter 19 verse 29, when when God is about to destroy the, when God destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we read, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered. In Genesis 30, 22, Rachel was barren. And the text tells us, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and he opened her womb. I didn't get this one on the screen, but Exodus 2, 24. We've been studying Exodus on Wednesday nights in our adult Bible classes. Um, and we read in, when Israel was, was being oppressed by the Egyptians in verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Or 1 Samuel 1.19, um, this is when Hannah was praying for a child. We're going to actually look at this next week for Mother's Day. But the text tells us, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And thus we get Samuel. So we see throughout the Old Testament, examples are put forth of God remembering. And it seems like what the text is really telling us is that God acted. God remembers. God acted. Um, in other words, there was, a, there was a period in the lives of all of these people, there was a time when God had stepped back and chosen not to act. So there was a time when Noah was floating in the ark and God was what? Letting him float. But then there was a time when God remembered and he chose to step in and intercede and intervene. Or I could restate it this way. Had God chosen not to act, things would have ended very differently. But God remembered and he chose to intercede. He chose to redirect the course. Now some of you are probably wondering why on the screen I have the picture of one of these silly Um, circular things. You may not have seen one of these before. You find them like in the public library. I know on the south side branch they have one set up and it's a it's this coin well and around the edges of this large flat or it's not flat but it's this large circle that that slowly dips down towards the middle is a place where you can set coins and so the kids get a coin and they set it up on the edge and it sends it rolling 
and the coin rolls around. It kind of kind of like flushing a toilet, but it's with a with a coin. And so the the coin rolls down this path, and it starts off slow, and it makes these broad sweeping circles. And then as time goes on, it gets faster and faster and faster, and it gets down to the middle. And I mean, then in the middle, I mean, it is just humming, and and then poof, and it falls down into the middle of the well. Now, my kids' favorite thing to do is to load this thing up with coins. It has coins on several sides, and they send them spinning. And then right before they either hit each other or get far enough away that they can't, 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 are out of reach, you know what they do? They reach down and they grab the coin, and they start the... It drives me crazy. Like, just, just let the coin go. Like, give, the, give the library their money so they can buy books so we can get out of here. But over and over, as long as I will let them, they'll start the coin rolling, and then they reach in and stop it. And that's the, that's the picture that I see here. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, humanity is, is, on a, is on a course. Maybe you could even say in this situation, Noah was on a course. And, and were God not to intervene, we know exactly how that course would have ended. Noah would have ran out of food. The ark would have eventually sunk. Something would have happened poorly. Um, it, was, it was heading a certain direction. But God reaches in when the moment is right. And he stops the, the course of his, the history from following the natural course set out. And he redirects. In all of these situations that I just explained, and in other situations throughout all of the Old Testament, this is how we see God interacting. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 13, a psalm of lament. And we were walking through some different psalms. But Psalm 13:1 begins with this, this question, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I look at that psalm and I look at this situation with Noah and I wonder, do we ever catch ourselves feeling the same way as if God has forgotten, as if he's turned his back on us, as if we can see the the course that's plotted out for us and and we know where it's headed and we don't want to go there and we cry out and we say, hey God, hey God, how long is it going to be till you you reach in and and you stop things from heading the direction that they're heading? You know, later we're going to see God put forth some promises that gives us assurance that he's never going to forget. Um, While the story of Noah is certainly the most formidable display of God's wrath in all of Scripture, it also represents a glorious story of hope for the future. So while it was, in a sense, true that Noah was in a, a hopeless situation... And while it's often true that when we're in a difficult situation in the midst of life that that things are heading down a course where we don't want them to go, it's often true that if things were left to their natural order, we would end up in places where we don't want to be. We would end up burdened with things that we don't want to be burdened with. When God remembers, He steps in and He changes that course. If He's promised to remember... Shouldn't that make a difference in what we see ahead? Instead of seeing the path that the coin's going down and know that it ends there, we can be confident that it's going to end somewhere else. It's going to end where God said that it would. The course that we are often on is not the final course. And so that's this first powerful takeaway as we step into this, as we shift gears in the narrative of the story and we move from God exercising his wrath to God remembering is that even when we're in the middle of the storm, even when we're headed down a pathway that, that we can see the end and we don't like it and it's not going to be good, we can take heart because God remembers those who are under his care. This is not the final course for his people. 
And so this good news starts emerging this, at this turning point. God's mercy begins to step in and overshadow his wrath, and he causes a wind to blow, and he causes the water to evaporate. And Noah's not done yet. We see as the story unfolds, it takes a long time for the ark to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and he sends some birds out, and, and they go to and fro until the, till the land dries out. But finally, in Genesis 18 and 19, we see Noah gets to step out of the boat. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And I asked myself, and I wonder this, if I had been trapped on a boat for 370 days, what is the first thing I would do? Well, I think I would kiss the ground. I'd be so excited to be out of that box with all of those stinky animals. I'd never been on a cruise till this summer, and, I, and so we went on a cruise. Of course, you get to get off the boat like every other day on a cruise, and I'm telling you, I was really excited to get off that boat after two days, 300, and I still felt like I was walking crooked the whole time. 370 days on a boat. Uh, I, I don't even know how I would respond, but the text tells us the first thing that Noah did when he gets off the ark. Noah builds an altar, and he offers sacrifices. In verses 20 through 22, we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Noah, unprovoked, uh, not directed by God in any shape, form, or fashion, gets out of the ark and his first act is an act of gratitude. You know, we've seen sacrifices already. Um, Cain and Abel is an example um, of one early on in the book of Genesis. But this is the first time we see an altar built. Note that he took one of every clean animal and bird. Noah had loaded the ark with, with seven pairs of every type of clean animal. So as they traveled through the ark, he would have, um, he, he would have cared for those. And here as they, as they get out, we see that that one of those clean pairs was, or one of those clean animals was sacrificed to God. Every single one of them. This wasn't like Noah just, just took his, his, little, his little special sheep and sacrificed it. Every type of clean animal was offered as a sacrifice to God. And in this action, he acknowledges his gratitude towards God's past action. But also his, his hope and trust in God's future actions. Because you see, there was a limited supply. Um, how precious those lives would have been if those were the lives that were going to be released to repopulate the earth. And yet Noah had the faith in God to know that he could take one of those and sacrifice them to God. In a sense, he was telling God, thank you for what you've done and I trust your provisions in the future. Now, the aroma of this offering, the text tells us, calls, causes God's heart to be moved. Now, I certainly have to believe this wasn't the aroma of burnt flesh that God found pleasing. This was the aroma that came from the heart of a grateful Noah. The aroma that came from a heart that expressed its gratitude towards God in the only way that he knew and was putting his trust in God moving forward. And it's in response to that aroma that Noah lays out that he formulates this covenant internally. 
Now, at this point in Genesis chapter 8, he hasn't shared it with Noah. This is just this, this glimpse we get into the heart of God. And so God smells this, and you, you get this glimpse into this conversation, and he says, oh, I know that man's heart is, is evil from his youth. I mean, I still see it. That hasn't been wiped away yet, but, but I'm never going to curse the ground again for them. I'm not ever going to wipe everything out. I'm not going to wipe out the, the earth in the way that I have. There's always going to be seasons in place. I am committing myself to this. It's one thing for God to remember us, but here something additional is implied. It's implied that a human, Noah, had some sway or some pull over God. Now, I, I find that interesting. I find it interesting that God's heart would be moved by something that Noah did. And it makes me wonder, can we really do something? Can, can we really offer something as the, the small humans that we are that, that pleases God? I mean, I think ahead into the New Testament in Acts chapter 17, and there's a sermon on Mars Hill, and Paul makes this powerful argument in verses 24 through 25. He said, we serve this God who made the world and everything in it, and he's Lord of heaven and the earth, and he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, I mean, it's very clear that, that we do. We serve this all-powerful God that doesn't need Noah's sacrifice. He doesn't need you to be sitting here this morning. That's not the type of God we serve. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need us. But needing and being pleased by something are very different. And I think the answer is yes. Yes, we can do things that are pleasing to God. And furthermore, we find that this, this action that Noah took, this pleasing action, evoked within God more than just a feeling. It caused God to put into action this, this covenant that blesses us even today. Now we look out in Scripture and we see other examples of this happening. For instance, there's this debate between Abraham and God when God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he, he, talks him, he talks him down on the number of righteous people that they're looking for. So there's this back and forth. We've uh, been studying Exodus and, and we see that Moses appears to talk God into letting Aaron partner with him and be his mouthpiece. There's this debate that goes back and forth. It kind of makes me uncomfortable. But we do the same thing. We pray. And we think our prayers are heard. And we believe our prayers can, can redirect or, call or even alter the will of God. It's a difficult thing that we have to wrestle with. But the fact is, here is an example. An example in real life of, of a human being doing something that God found pleasing and it caused him to act. We should be grateful to Noah for offering the sacrifice. Because it's through this priestly action that he symbolically interceded for all future humanity. He set a course in place that is uh, impacting us in, in major ways today. We experience a, a sense of stability in the here and now because of this interaction that Noah had with God thousands of years ago. And so now we move into chapter 9 and we see God begin to reveal this. Now, before he directly reveals his covenant, he has to set some new ground rules to make it work. 
And so we enter the text in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see God kind of sets some interesting rules, um, some interesting interplay between life and death and justice. So let's look at it real quick. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So the first thing that we see is life. God tells them in the same fashion that he told Adam and Eve, okay, it's time to be fruitful and multiply. That that one doesn't surprise us, and they were successful because here we are. Um, But but there's something um, unexpected that comes after that. You see, God weaves death into the fabric of life in the verses that follow. He gives animals to mankind for food. And it seems that this was probably a new thing that likely didn't exist before the flood. This permission that he granted them to eat animals, um, at first glance, seems... um, unassociated with the other things that are happening. But if we, if we look closely, we see at its core, this intimately connects life with death. Specifically, your lifeblood is sustained by removing the lifeblood of another animal. You may have had bacon for breakfast. You're probably going to eat something delicious for lunch. And the truth is, we go to the restaurant and we eat that hamburger without giving it much of a thought. Or we go to the store and we buy that meat and it's shrink-wrapped on a little platter and underneath it has a a little absorptive pad so that any blood that does dribble out of it would be absorbed and you don't have to see that unsightly thing. And we've sanitized the process of eating in a sense that we don't even understand the connection between life and death. But I'm here to tell you, you are alive and breathing today in a very physical sense because something else gave its lifeblood for that to be the case. And this was put in place after the flood. Now, not just the concept of life for death, but we also see this concept of reckoning introduced. So justice. So as we get to the end of this passage, he says life for life, blood for blood. And and certainly this was a shift as well. At the beginning, before the flood, when when Cain killed Abel, Cain was really concerned that other people were going to kill him. And and in chapter 4, verse 15, we read, The Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. That's pretty interesting. But we see this guilty man preserved from the results of the violence that he had perpetrated. Now, I hope at this point some of these themes are are starting to connect in your head. You see, death now requires punishment. That was a shift. Maybe I should say violence requires retribution. Furthermore, life is sustained and supported through death. So, just as sacrifice is shown as this pleasing aroma to God, death is introduced as a supporter for life. And justice is introduced as a way of keeping things in check 
And now we can see this road being laid out and paved to us that even in the story of Noah points towards Christ. Christ whose death is going to bring spiritual life. Christ whose sacrifice is going to propitiate all of our violence and sin. Now, at this point, the waters are still a little bit muddy. We're way early on in God's revelation in the Old Testament. And, and as it progresses, we see things settle and clear. But, but the bottom line is this, a powerful theological foundation is being laid, even here at the beginning, for us to understand life and death and sacrifice and how that interacts with us. So finally, in verse 8, God has laid the foundation and he can reveal his covenant. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Let's continue in verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Last night we were leaving my in-laws house and it was of course raining and Brianna jumped out of the truck to take this picture I'm about to put on the screen. Can we put the next picture up? End to end rainbow. How cool is that? I mean, I'm preaching on the, the promises of God, and the night before, he gives us a, like a real-life rainbow. And I mean, this wasn't just like I got to see part of a rainbow, end-to-end rainbow. Absolutely beautiful. I can hardly drive home without running off the road trying to watch the rainbow before it disappeared. This covenant was with us and the animals. He promised that water would never again destroy all flesh. We no longer have to fear the rain. But notice that in the text, he actually uses an interesting phrase. The, the rainbow is a sign for us. But in verse 16, for instance, he says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. You know, oftentimes we look at this and think, Oh, that was put there for me to remember. No, that was put there as a sign for you to know that God will remember. And I think that little nuance matters. I mean, chapter 8 began with God remembering, and here we see the promise points us to the fact that don't forget that God is going to remember. And here's the reason why that nuance matters, because it doesn't amount to a hill of beans if you remember. You don't have any power in the matter. It doesn't matter if you remember the covenant or not. What matters is that God remembers because God is the one that has the power to sustain it. And when we look at that bow in the sky, we can be confident that when God makes a promise, He remembers. 
floating in the ark, but not forgotten. Standing under rain clouds, but not forgotten. Powerless, powerless we stand, but we are not forgotten. Because God made a covenant. He made a covenant that that didn't depend on us. He made a unilateral covenant, a one-way promise. God decided, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how it's going to be. And because of that, we get to live differently. It wouldn't do any good for me to remember. But when we see the rainbow and know God remembers, that is a powerful message. So as difficult as and terrifying as, as as the story of, of God's wrath can be, as it wraps up and, and we see the rest of the story unfold, we're left in a very different place than before. We're left in a place of, of great news. You see, we, we live in this sinful, broken, collapsing world, just like they did, and, and we learn that God is going to destroy evil with death. He's going to exercise His wrath. But, but, God remembers His own. There's hope in the storm. When we look out at the world around us, we don't have to get discouraged because he's made a promise and he's put provisions in place to be sure that things can sustain until he fulfills that promise. He's put measures in place to keep things in check. He's made promises so we can feel secure. He has provided a means for life to be obtained, both physical and spiritual, and he's placed this reminder in the sky so we know that he knows and hasn't forgotten. Now, if you're like me, I hear all of this and it leaves me feeling a little bit helpless. That's a lot of, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. And I think that that's an important thing for us to notice. We should be careful not to miss that fact. Because the story of Noah is not about Noah, it's not about you, it's about God and his action. So Noah, even in his righteousness, even though he walked with God, did not have the power to save himself. Noah, in his sacrifice, did nothing to accomplish salvation. The story is all about God and this one-way interaction that he showed his love with mankind. God has been doing a lot. And so we come up and we're like, so thank you, God, but what do we do? And I believe that we should take the same posture towards God as Noah did. We offer sacrifice. We certainly know from the New Testament that the Old Testament's form of sacrifice has passed away. But a a new sort of sacrifice has taken its place. It's really not that new. God has always been concerned with the heart of his followers. The pleasing aroma has always came from the heart and, and not the burnt offering. But now today we live under this era of Christ where his blood covers our sins for all perpetuity and the only sacrifice that remains is the lives that we have to give. And Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us very clearly, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, just like Noah, we don't offer sacrifice for salvation. We offer it because of salvation. 
We don't offer our lives to him so that he will save us. We don't live for this salvation as a result or as a payment for anything that we can do. We offer sacrifice to him. We live differently because he has saved us. We live differently in response to his grace. I hope that as these last three weeks have unfolded, you can see the gospel fully manifested in the story of Noah. I mean, it was thousands of years ago we see that God had a plan and he was moving in a direction and, and now we can see that it was pointing to these days. The wrath of God, the salvation of God, our human response, all of those things have been shown in the story of Noah. Evil is going to be fought with death. Life is going to be preserved through Christ. And the Christian lives that we live are lived out of gratitude. Gratitude that overflows in obedience. And that is what we are called to do as we leave from this place. At this time, I would like to offer an invitation. You can choose for yourself whether this story is good news or bad news. You can choose a temporary life of seeming joy that ends in wrath or a perpetual life of actual joy that begins with confidence now and ends in the eternal joy and peace of heaven. If you would like prayers, if you would like to study, if you believe and would like to be baptized, the invitation is open. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.